You ever want to know what's going on in the real estate market from somebody who's actually in it? Not just national headlines or news channels that just want to stoke fear, but what's really actually going on? And how do things kind of operate in the real estate world? Well, you found the right spot. I'm Michelle Vogel, and this is The Realtor Lady, and I will tell you everything you want to know about real estate from my perspective here where I sit in Santa Cruz, California. So tell your friends you can't talk right now because you are with The Realtor Lady. This episode is about installment sales or what you would think of as like seller financing. This is a very unique financing option in the market, and it's not used very much. And a colleague came up to me and said, you know, you should do this. There are some sellers in position that this may really work for them. What would that be? Well, they would be in what we would consider an equity position where they have a lot of equity. They don't want to pay taxes on it. It might be all that they have is the equity in their home and they're trying to preserve it. They don't want to have their benefits reduced. They don't want to have, of course, a high tax bill. Who does? And this is one way they can sell their home and preserve their equity. It's great for buyers also. They could possibly get a lower interest rate. They could also uh, buy from a family member. They could be creative in their financing. It's a really, it's an interesting thing to think about. And we wanted to talk about it. And, and in this episode, we do. I really encourage you to stay t- through the whole episode. A lot of the meat comes towards the end. So stay to the end. You'll get all the great stuff here. I hope you enjoy. Hey there, welcome back. It's Michelle Replogel, the Realtor Lady. And today we're going to talk about a subject that may come back this year. We will see that is seller financing or installment sales. And what this might do to help sellers, especially now with rising prices, I mean, they're just finding that they can get so much more for their home. They have equity. What do you do with the equity? You have a tax bill or possibly a reduction in medical benefits or other programs that you're involved in that may depend on extra income coming in that may affect those. So I have not really done more than two seller financing sales at all. So I don't even want to broach this topic. So I brought in a pro, Anina Vian Alston, who is at our office, Coldwell Banker Realty, but she has over many years of experience. I'll let you say how long you've been in the business. And I know you've structured lots of deals in lots of different ways, but today we'll just be talking about the uh, installment sale, just because I think it can get a little overwhelming. But welcome. Thank you, Michelle. It is such an honor to be invited onto your show. I've been following it, and what you've been doing with it is incredible. Thank you. So um, Michelle is so nice. She doesn't want to let you know that I started in the business in 1978, 45 years ago. And at the time when I got my license, uh, shortly after I got my license, interest rates went up to 19% for a fixed rate mortgage. And that was prohibitive. And so as a result of that in the early years of my profession, I had to learn a lot about what they used to call creative financing. (laughs) Well, some creative financing you don't want to touch with a long pole, but there are two kinds of creative ways you can work to avoid paying horrendous income taxes on a sale. We're going to talk about installment sale. The other one is a 1031 exchange, but let's stay with the installment sale. Let me, I'm just going to jump in really quick here though. I, I want to add, though, when you were doing that creative financing, that was at a time where people were probably, I mean, interest rates were high, lending was a little little bit more difficult, possibly. But also, I think people have found themselves in the boat of having a lot more equity. They weren't really following it, maybe mildly, and then went to make a, a life change. Yeah. Well, the thing is, in... In 1982, which is when interest rates went down 19%, you could buy a house in Carbonero Estates for $150,000. So you're right. The equity position was less, but still there's the tax issue. So I'm going to stay focused on the benefits and also the risks of an installment sale. So in those days, the IRS... um, 
determined that if a seller received less than 29% of the sales price in the year of sale, 29% or less, they could do what's called an installment sale. And they could defer the taxable income of the rest of the principal until the rest of the principal payments came in. So, for example, if you had a house you sold for a million dollars and you took 25% down, that's $250,000. And then average expenses on a sale like that would be $75,000. So you would have left about $175,000 to pay long-term capital gains taxes on in the year of sale. Now, the reason that's an advantage, I can see you thinking, Michelle. Do you want me yeah, to stop? Yeah, no, no advantages and no, no disadvantages just yet. Let's go back to what actually an installment sale is. It's a sale where you sell your property and you do not receive cash for the sale in excess of, it used to be 29%. Now you can actually receive more than that, but you should talk to your accountant. But provided that you don't receive all of the cash in the the year of the sale, you can spread out the tax consequences based on the principle that you receive as you receive it. You can really only do an installment sale and have it work out if you have 100% equity in the house. Because if you have an existing first mortgage, then you're going to need to get enough cash to pay off the first mortgage. And it, it just doesn't work. You need to have a lot of equity in the house. But the reason that the installment sale is popping up now so dramatically is that we're working with many clients who've owned houses in Santa Cruz since the 70s. I mean, I'm in my 70s. The people I'm working with, a lot of them bought houses here when you could buy a house near the ocean on the west side for $150,000 or $200,000. If that house is worth $2 million now and you take cash for that sale and you're on Medicare, mm -hmm. that's going to eradicate your Medicare for a year or two after the sale closes. Right. Or it could, and it's going to just mess up a lot of things. So that's one reason a person would not want to get the cash. They don't want to mess with their Medicare. Interestingly enough, that can be more important than not wanting to trigger alternative minimum tax and a hideous tax consequence on a sale that's a once-in-a-lifetime event. Yeah, so we're those, not going to get into alternative tax. But but no, that's actually where I started with was the people who have now found themselves in an equity position that they're like, what do I do? Right. Right. And so it's the next benefit, which is huge, but doesn't have to do with tax problems and Medicare problems, is that people who are of retirement age want income. Right. And so right now, you know, interest rates, although they've gone up, when you've got your money in retirement savings accounts, if you have a low risk account, because the rule in investing is the greater the risk, the greater the return. So if you have your money invested in CDs or low risk accounts, you're going to hardly be making anything. You might be making four or 5% interest. If you have a conservative stockbroker, you might be making six or seven, but it still has more risk than a secured first mortgage, secured by a deed of trust on a single family home, God forbid it would be in the line of fire of the earthquake or the tsunami. You know, you want to know that your old house, that's your security is probably going to still be standing in 30 years, but you've got a good security there. You know the house. And so having that security and what Michelle was talking about at the beginning of this conversation was that interest rates are going up and Financing can be expensive, but more important than that is that as banks become more conservative, and I've been through four of these time periods where banks start being more conservative about how they're lending. There was a period of time in the late 2007-2008 period where if a loan was over a million dollars, you basically almost had to give them your blood. Uh, when if you own more than three investment properties, they wouldn't make a loan under owner financing even if you said you were going to live there. So we may be going into a time period where a person who has too many assets might have a problem getting a loan. Also, people who do not have an American social security number cannot get a loan. And we have a lot of people moving to Santa Cruz from Israel and France and the Eastern European countries who are coming to work for these um, dot-com companies. And sometimes they can get a green card, 
but they may not always be lendable, even though they may have millions in the bank and they might have perfect credit where they come from. So by being willing to do an installment sale, a seller makes their property more easily accessible to a potential buyer because we take the Fannie Mae lender out of the picture. They become the lender. Okay, so they're going to be the lender, and we're going to talk in a minute about the risks. But the important thing about how the sale needs to be structured is that they're going to take a note secured by a deed of trust, and because they're the lender and they're not a Fannie Mae insured lender, they can decide how they want to receive the income. So they can take an amortized loan, amortized over 30 years. Most sellers don't want to have the payments not be paid for 30 years. They might want a 30-year amortization due and payable in 10 or 15. Their estate is going to have that note. That note goes into their estate. When they die, the estate has a stepped-up basis, and I believe, and you should check with your accountant, I think that it comes for the note as well. So they might do a 10-year or 15-year call with a 15- or 30-year amortization, And then the title company presents you with a little, well, there used to be a booklet, now it's a form, and it shows you how much principal you're getting every month. And at the end of the year, you report that principal that you received separately from the interest because it's two different tax situations. Right. And it comes in like that. Or I did a real fun thing one time. Some other realtors in town, their mother needed to go in a nursing home and we were selling the condo that she had bought free and clear when she owned it for 30 years. She needed income to offset the cost of her nursing home. And my buyer clients didn't want to actually move to Santa Cruz for three years. So they, we did an installment sale where they put 29% down. We wrote the note came due in its entirety in five years. So they had time to sell their house in Palo Alto, plenty of time. And we created it with monthly payments that financed the nursing home and gave her $2,000 a month extra in principle, in case she needed it. So it's kind of a dream because you can create with the buyer, you can create the kind of financing that works for both parties. It means that not only is the price of the house and the length of the escrow and the repairs negotiable, but in the beginning, you can create an architecture for how this money is going to come into the seller. Um, Another example, because I think examples are easier to digest than abstractions, is that years ago I sold a commercial building that had been a restaurant to a client who was an oncologist in town, and they were getting a small business association loan, which again, it's like you have to slit your wrists and prove everything. And they were doing that until the seller's accountant said, don't take cash to the seller, do an installment sale because you're in your late 70s and you need income. And if you take tax cash, the, the huge amount of tax is going to wipe out all that principal. And no matter how you invest it, if you lose 40% to the government, you're not going to have enough to live on. So that seller financed for my oncologist client. Well, sadly, he and his wife got divorced and um, he had some serious problems. He, had some, he, was, he lost his practice because he was a drug addict. Mm-hmm. And so when we went to sell the medical building, even though they were getting a divorce, she was very kind and concerned about him. And what she liked about it is, is that the cash that came in on the installment sale, it was $5,000 a month that they shared equally, but she could, she knew that he couldn't just take all the principal and go blow it on something. So if you, for example, if you are a person who has parents who are elderly and might not be making great decisions about what they do with their money, having an installment sale may set up an outside set of controls for the income coming in so they don't decide to give it all to someone else or, you know, the the Pet Foundation or the American Friends Service Committee, and all of a sudden their money just went away because they were altruistic, but they didn't plan well. So, so, so let's, great? yes, and I <laughs> want to just take a second to digest all that. So that's amazing that you touched on that. I did sell a home, I don't know, maybe 2007 or eight, and they they were a bit older, not old enough to retire, and they did blow all their money. 
And I think he passed away. She lives with her sister now. And they did. And there was nobody to protect. I could not protect. I tried so hard. I tried to get them to put the money in a CD or... So yeah. I'm glad that you you touched on that. That That is really huge. But the other part of it that we need to think about is in this kind of, I, I would say where we are right now in real estate, I think it might be something that's more doable. I think there was a, there was a few periods in my short 18-year career where this just really wasn't done. It was very hard to do. The broker wouldn't do it. The broker, you're newer. We don't want you doing things like that. And, and so you just get in it. You end up getting people doing things the traditional way, which may not really fit them. So that's that's important to know too. I, th- I think the market could actually handle it. And I think there's, you're obviously very skilled, know how to get these things done, but we have, we have a few out there that. I know. Well, when, when this particular couple went to sell their property, um, they were getting a divorce. And because I had come into the relationship through the wife, the soon to be ex-husband picked a different realtor to represent his half of the equity and that realtor is a really great commercial broker. They're out of town now. But um, he had never done owner financing. He had no clue how to do it. So I want to talk about that for a minute because there's some things about how that happens. So can you a, first can you first describe just maybe just a brief cast of characters when you do this? Because this isn't just two realtors doing this, I would imagine. Who was your oh, team? Can, but there okay. should be an attorney and there's the title company. So thanks, okay. Michelle. That's exactly where I was going. So the instrument that's going to describe the terms of how this loan is going to be made is a promissory note. And that note absolutely needs to be secured by a first mortgage on the property. And because it's going to be secured, there wants to be a trustee. So the trustee is the title company that gives the buyer their title insurance and runs the escrow. So, for example, if it was First American title that you do the escrow through, they become the trustee and they're the one who gets the recording done. So it shows the whole world, the whole public knows that was recorded through First American. So what happens is the first deed of trust, what that tells the borrower and the lender is that the borrower is giving the power of sale to the trustee, i.e. the title company in this situation, to sell the property if they default on their loan. So I was going to talk about risks, and I want to get there gracefully, but it's like, which do you go to first? The title company has been given the power to sell the property on the courthouse steps in a foreclosure sale if the borrower defaults. So the risk of doing an installment sale is if your borrower defaults, you might get the property back and it might take a while and you won't be getting your payments if they default. So you're not going to have income for four months because the whole foreclosure process in an ideal world takes 90 days plus 21 days. So 121 days. So you always have to plan that if you're going to count on that income, know that if something happened, you might not get it. The reason that you want to have at least 25% down in a typical installment sale, and there are ways that you can secure it more than that, but you want 25% down because just like the way the bank gives a better interest rate, if you pay 20% down than 10, if you pay 25%, they're more flexible. As I said in the beginning, the greater the risk, the greater the return. So you want to ameliorate the the holder of the note wants less risks. 25% is great. Okay, you get 25% down. There needs to be a credit check. You can have a mortgage broker you know do it for you, or you can go to one of the credit agencies. You definitely want to make sure that your borrower is credit worthy, and you want to know what other obligations they have. Because if they have 12 properties and this is going to be a rental for them, this might be the first one they're willing to let go of if they get in trouble. It's just like the way the banks look at it. Greater the risk, the greater the return. It's the simplest thing in real estate. It's the most true in any investments. Whether you go to the Nordstrom Rack and you buy the $500 dress for $100 and you get home and you discover the scenes are all wacky wampus, or you go to Nordstrom and the personal shopper buys it for you for $500, if you paid $100, you took a big risk. And if you got a great dress, you saved $400. That was a great return. Greater the risk, greater the return. Okay, so the people who can put this together, a real estate broker, 
like I'm a real estate broker and I work a Cobalt Banker. I am not a mortgage broker. A mortgage broker has to have a real estate license. A real estate broker can put together three owner financing a year. Oh. And I'm not sure if that's all of Cobalt Banker, if that's me as an individual. And that's something we need to check with our legal department. I have not done installment sales since I worked at the company I worked at before Cobalt Banker. But I often used to do three a year. Um, so the parties are, there's the title company that has permission okay. to sell. There's the two agents who negotiate the contract and the, the basic terms of how the installment sale is going to work. Then I usually recommend that the seller, if I'm representing the seller, goes to their attorney or their financial advisor to review everything. So if I were writing, if I were receiving an offer from a buyer on a property that I have listed and there's going to be owner financing and we're putting one on the market in May where the sellers are only going to sell it to people who will let them do owner financing because their tax consequences are too horrendous. Okay. So we, I know what the seller likes ideally. We negotiate, but in the counteroffer, we make it subject to the approval of the buyer's attorney or financial advisor within five days of acceptance. And the borrower might want to do that too, because there are tax laws are changing all the time. Mm. And as a real estate broker, I cannot give tax advice. So I can set up a structure that looks really good for my seller, but I cannot give tax advice. So in case anybody noticed, this is very general terms we're talking. We're right. talking about the difference on a sale between long-term capital gains on a huge amount of cash income all of a sudden versus a much smaller amount and spreading it out. Because can you see that if it's that million-dollar sale and you take a note for $75,000 and the seller has a buyer who has enough cash that they're really fine to pay them $30,000 a year in principal or $75,000 a year, and you can dribble that income out besides the interest income, you could really create a better tax situation. So the parties are the two realtors, the buyer's agent, the seller's agent, the advisors to the buyer or the seller, and the title company. And sometimes the title company draws the note. Sometimes they want the attorney or the accountant to draw the note. Those are the parties if everything goes well. And if the title company ends up having to initiate a foreclosure, then there, there might be other parties, like if the foreclosure happens on the county steps and the person who owed the money wouldn't move out of the house, there might be a sheriff involved. Right. I've never had that happen, but I've heard of it happening. And realistically, you have to know it could happen because sometimes when people get in financial trouble, they get mad at the people that lent them the money instead of themselves because that's easier for them. Right, right. I had a question oh, and I lost it in all there. Uh, let's see, the 25% down. So, oh, I know. So what would the typical interest rate be? I, I, I know your notes here um, charge a little bit more. Well, you can, or you can charge a little <laughs> bit less. You can't charge nothing. Because right. if you charge less than a certain amount, the IRS is going to impute that you got that amount of interest and they're going to tax you on it whether you got it or not. Right. So you have to charge a certain amount of interest. Um, but so that is, you know, right now the going rate for a fixed rate 30-year loan, I think, is about 6.5%. Mm -hmm. But, you know, when you're doing owner financing, you might get a buyer who comes in and says they want to pay 5.5%. And for the tax savings that you get, you might go, well, okay, because I actually have a benefit, which is the tax savings. Um, I, I don't think they usually come in and they say they want to pay you seven <laughs> or eight, but you could say you want to have a percent more because you're saving them points and extra closing costs. Now, there's a couple of things I want to say that are really important that go into the note, and I want to tell you about that note. A well-written note secured by a first or second deed of trust, but for an installment sale, it has to be a first deed of trust is an, an instrument which can be sold. Right. If you write it properly and it's properly seasoned, you might be able to sell it to somebody where they don't even want to have a discount to increase their rate of return on their investment because they like the idea of the income so much. But generally, a note is discounted when it gets sold. But to be a okay. saleable instrument, it has to have a few really important features. 
The first one is there needs to be a due on sale clause. Mm -hmm. There has to be a due on sale clause because even if somebody buys the note and somebody goes to negotiate and the person who then owns it decides they're willing to mm -hmm. let it go pass through and that can happen, they need to know they have the control or they're not going to pay the highest price for that note. There also should be a late penalty and the standard late penalty, the maximum is 6% of the amount owed. And within 15, if it's received 15 or more days late from the date on which it was due, that's in your bank loan. Now that does two things. The late penalty is a penalty, but it also gives the buyer and with a single family owner occupied residence, you have to give them that 15 days. It gives them a 15 day grace period. And there are borrowers who will use every day of that 15 days every single month because they're just like that. But you absolutely. Well, yeah, a lot of people do it because it's like a little savings account for them. I pay it three days before it's due because I'm type A and I'm a nervous wreck about everything going right. But everybody has their choice. But you absolutely need to put in that late penalty and on an owner-occupied single-family residence, those are the terms. Um, so you have a due on sale or acceleration clause. That's the formal name can of you, it. Can you explain simply due on sale clause? I think that went a little fast and um, okay. that's just um, really basic. Yeah. The due on sale clause says that it, in order for title to transfer to another person, for a sale to be completed, this loan has to get paid off. So when a borrower, when a buyer goes to escrow to buy a property, the job of the title company is to research the title. And because that first mortgage is recorded against the title and the note can be referenced, the title company that's going to transfer the sale will see that this has to be paid off. And what they will do is send to the beneficiary. The beneficiary is the person who's being paid the payments. It's the person who's getting the benefits of, of having made this loan. Uh, also known as the trustor, the trustee is the title company. I'm sorry, the trustor is the borrower. The beneficiary is the person who lent the money and the trustee is the title company. They will write to the beneficiary and ask for a demand. And the beneficiary then, it's just like a, a regular bank. The beneficiary sends them on a form the amount that's still owed with the interest that's owed, any back payments that are owed. They fill that out. The title company then collects that money in the escrow and they don't record the uh, reconveyance of that deed and they don't put the new loan on until that is paid off. So the title company... And the title company for the sale, by the way, doesn't have to be the same title company as the trustee. Um, it can be any title company. They know what their obligations are, and they have to get that reconveyance ready to go before the new loan or the sale can, can record. So if I'm a seller and I've done this installment sale with the buyer, I can sell that loan Yes, but let me finish the, the things you need in the note to make okay, it Okay, that's true. I just, I think I'm a little confused with that, pe okay, that piece. Yeah, great. we'll have to go back to that. Yes, and in case anybody is taking notes, you know, or they get confused, they can reach out to you or me. Um, but in the note, there are elements that need to be there to make it so that it's saleable. Um, there needs to be a due on sale clause. Mm -hmm. uh, well, legal and saleable. There, so to be legal, there needs to be a late penalty with a, 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 a grace period. Um, to protect the seller, there should be a due on sale or acceleration clause. Um, I always put in no subordination, ah. just to make it really clear. Yes. But if somebody wants to go and say, borrow some money from their aunt because they're going to do a $200,000 remodel, this loan will stay the first loan because sometimes that aunt wants to become the first mortgage and they want this to subordinate and become a second. I put it right out there in black and white that there's no subordination clause. Really, really important. Um, and then because it's an installment sale and it could really, really matter to the seller not to get more money than they have agreed to get in any given year, especially the first year, mm -hmm. you might put a prepayment penalty. And that is where, because these law, laws about that kind of thing change all the time, at any given time when somebody is going to finance their property, they need to get legal advice or advice from their accountant 
about what is the maximum prepayment penalty that they can charge. Um, banks sometimes even put a prepayment penalty for the first two years because they have gone to all the effort and expense of creating this financing. They don't want to get paid sooner. So those are the four things. Due on sale, late penalty, um, no subordination, and prepayment penalty. Four things. I can just imagine... I would think that the note that gets written between the buyer and seller would be so much easier to read too. I feel like that the note should be bullet point because I spend time when my buyers sign off pointing to each thing when there's all these words. Like it seems like the very first page of the note should just be the highlights and then the explanation kind of like our contract behind it where this seems actually very simple and very actually almost easier to understand in my well, mind. Well, thank you. Because guess what? It, ele- simplicity is elegance. And I thought a lot about how to present this in a way because, you know, it sounds so complicated. It's just like a 1031 exchange. It is so simple as long as you know how to do it. And if you've done it as many times as I have, it's like, yeah, these are the things you need. But when it gets written in the offer, by the way, on the purchase contract, on the page where it talks for financing, there's a box you could check that says additional financing terms. And this, because I know there's realtors who probably listen to this, Michelle, because you do a great job. If there's a realtor involved, that additional financing terms, there is a document, I think it's a five or six page document called a seller financing disclosure. And that becomes part of the purchase contract. And in that, you spell out everything. Oh, the fifth thing. I said four things. Fifth thing on that note. Do not forget. Must be done. Tax service. The the beneficiary wants to get notified by a tax service if the borrower is late on their property tax payments. Mm -hmm. Because the way the state works with property taxes is You have five years to make up your property taxes, but if your property taxes don't get paid for five years, the property defaults to the state because a first mortgage takes priority in front of everything except the state and their property taxes and possibly a mechanics lien. So property taxes, you definitely want a tax service in the form that seller financing form, there's a place where you talk about tax services. There's a place where you talk about the borrower maintaining insurance and the lender, the beneficiary, being also named on the insurance policy, just like a bank. Mm -hmm. Because if you've sold that million-dollar property and the land value is $300,000 and the $700,000 house burns down with the borrower in it, I'm sorry to say it, but you want to be the beneficiary so you can rebuild that house and still have an asset. So you definitely want to monitor the insurance and the taxes, just like a regular bank does. Wow. Okay. And that's where that's how you create a saleable note. Now, let's talk about that saleable note for a minute. Um, if you write it at a... Comp- oh, no, there's one more thing I want to talk about with that note. Yes. Is that... Um, just as with a bank where a bank does a fixed interest rate loan and it's a certain interest rate, but they also have variable rate loans, an owner finance note can be written with a provision that the note would be recalculated at a certain period of time. And they can use indices the way that a bank does. They can use LIBOR, they can use whatever, Mm -hmm. or they can just automatically say that at the end of the five years, the interest rate would go up 2% or whatever they want to say. But it does have the ability to have a clause that provides for interest rates being adjusted upwards or downwards. And the what the reason that would be important is if it was a long-lasting note um, and it was going into someone's uh, estate and they might want to sell it, The it's just going to affect the value of the note to a borrower. If it's just a three- or five-year note, it's not that big of a deal. But if it's a 10, 15, or 20-year note, you probably want to at least be able to revisit the interest rate at a certain point if someone might want to sell it. Otherwise, it doesn't matter that much. I mean, it does matter, but it isn't that critical. Okay. So that's the note. So we we 
explain what it is, why you want to use it, how you would do it, who the players are. So why would you do it? We know that. What are the other um, upsides that we didn't cover? I don't think there was any. I think we covered a lot because we covered a mm-hmm. we covered that by by for the benefit of the seller, the beneficiary, they avoid a huge tax hit that could change even other benefits besides taxes, and they can set up a situation where they have regular income. And what I didn't talk about is this may have been an investment property they're selling where they got regular income, but they have to pay a property manager and they're going to have to pay expenses like new roofs and they have to take care of the property while they own it, while it's an investment property. And they have the risk of tenants who don't make their rent payments or who move out and trash it or whatever. So if they're owning the investment property for income, a way to simplify the the situation so all they're getting is income, unless God forbid they have to foreclose, is to sell the property and do an installment sale. I have a friend who's a retired banker who bought two multi-unit properties in Spokane, Washington, with 15-year mortgages. They've been paid off for five years. She sold one two years ago. She's going to sell the other one, and she's doing installment sales. She planned it all very carefully to have bigger income and depreciation while she was still working, and now that she's retired, she's just going to take the income. And by the way, her property manager is retiring too, so she doesn't want to have to get a new property manager. So I have a, a buyer, a buyer. Well, I have a friend who actually did this with her mom, with her mom's house, and she Ooh. wanted to pay it off. And mom said, "No, you can't." Mom and mom's advisor said, "No, you actually can't." So is is there a way to get that? buyer out of that situation and keep the seller in their situation or well i mean if the buyer is the is the okay so there is a way and i and i heard about this from a tax attorney um there's a way in a family that sometimes it's better for the person who is the the person who would normally leave it to someone in their estate to actually sell it to that party and do an installment sale and get the income. That's where it came from. Mm-hmm. They get the income and the note gets forgiven when they pass, which does create a tax consequence depending on how big the note is when they pass. But it is an instrument that families can use for planning, for estate planning and income for a person that might need income. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah I think that I think if the, the buyer wants to get out of the sale, though, it sounds like it might be a little... What do they do? I'm not sure. What do you mean if the buyer wants to get out of sale? Well, if the buyer wants to actually just pay off their mortgage. Well, that's why you put the prepayment penalty. Yeah. Because you can't keep them from paying off their mortgage. Our clients that are going to be selling in the spring were like, well, we don't want them to pay off the mortgage early. And I'm like, well, you can't keep them from doing that. What you can do is put a prepayment penalty that's the biggest one that you can put so that they would really think twice about the consequences. Or it would actually pay your tax balance. Yeah. However, you just try to do the best you can with that. So the benefits for the sellers, we talked about the benefit for the buyer. Um, And this is a situation where they might want a fixed rate. They might want to be able to readjust down if rates go down. The benefit to the buyer is they don't have to go through the conventional lending process. Um, Although you would want to do a credit check, you would want to do employment verification. You want to do a lot of the same stuff. But some of the guidelines that might make a Fannie Mae insured lender not lend, like uh, foreign national or whatever, um, that might be more flexible. The other thing is, and we did this right after the 1989 earthquake, we did an installment sale that was actually something called an all-inclusive deed of trust, which was a wraparound, which is uh, marginally, I don't even know if it's legal anymore, but the borrower, the buyer had lost their house and they had health credit. They had health issues. So they lost their credit. They lost their house in the earthquake. They had plenty of money, but not enough money to pay cash for the house. The seller, on the other hand, was able to create this financing and they actually took money out on a first and then they did this wraparound. I felt like when we were negotiating that, there was an angel in the corner of our conference room because this buyer and this seller needed very specific things. Nobody was a problem. The buyer had assets. Just in the eyes of a bank, they didn't look good enough. 
And the seller really needed to go. They needed to get out of town. And there were a lot of issues that she needed to get out of here. And it was like this heavenly deal that went together. And what we did, though, where I was going with that is because the seller was, because there was an underlying note that the buyer had to pay, the seller required that buyer to put a, a dual signature bank account that she was authorized to pay the underlying note if anything went wrong so that there was good insurance policies for that for her. Hmm. So what are the downsides? The downsides for whom? For the uh, installment sale. Well, the downsides for the seller are that the buyer could stop making their payments. Then they have to notify the trustee. The trustee begins the foreclosure process. For the first 90 days of the foreclosure process, there will be fees incurred right away. If the foreclosure sale, if the foreclosure process begins, there are substantial fees in the thousands of dollars that occur because the trustee has to get to work on it, the title company. Um, so once a foreclosure process begins, the buyer has 90 days in which they can pay off all the back payments that were owed to the seller and the penalties and the fees for beginning the foreclosure process. After the 90 days, when it goes to publication and getting ready to go to sale on the courthouse steps, the borrower at that time would have to pay off the debt in its entirety to forestall the foreclosure process. Otherwise, what happens is that at the end of the 21 days, there is literally a sale on the courthouse steps of the property. And because the seller has the first mortgage, um, if nobody comes to the courthouse steps, they're just going to get the property back. Now, in a falling market, if they sold that million-dollar property and they were owed $750,000, by the way, they get to keep the 25%. They don't have to repay that. But say that they're still owed $750,000 and it goes to the courthouse steps, but the market has dropped a lot, maybe really the property is not worth a million dollars anymore. Maybe, I mean, anything that it's worth over 750, they're still coming out like gravy because they already got their 25% down. But if the property declines in value a lot, they may get an asset back that isn't worth as much as the note. They still get it back though. They also may get it back where it's not in the kind of shape it was when they sold it because sometimes borrowers get really mad and they rip out all the kitchen cabinets and they plug up the toilet with cement and they do horrible things. So knowing you're going to get your security property back there is a risk to the seller. Don't forget, the greater the risk, the greater the return. Part of the seller's return that they got for taking this risk is they didn't pay all that money to the IRS. That was a big chunk because if the long-term capital gains federal are 15 to 25% on property, but if they trigger alternative minimum tax and they're in a high tax bracket, they could be paying 40 or 50% on the whole million-dollar chunk well, okay, they hit a home run because they didn't pay the IRS, but on the other end, they kind of got stuck because the tenant, tra the owner, the buyer trashed the house. So that's the downside. And they've got to be ready to go through those four months with no income, plus that they have to fix it up if it got trashed to resell it or if they need to fix it up to re-rent it because they decided they wanted it back and they're happy to have it back. There's some downsides, but it's, okay. you know... Have you There's had that no happen to any of your clients? Never. Have you ever? Yeah. No, I've never had that happen. I mean, when you get 25% down and you do a credit check and all that, I think the only thing that would happen is if somebody, you know, became a meth head or something. I mean, they'd have to really have a personality transplant. <laughs> What's the average interest rate you see people use? Not, say, a specific number, but is it usually a little higher or than the going or a little lower than the going? You know, right. I, I would say that there's no average. Okay. It's really what gets worked out. Have you had any buyer or seller contact you and say they want to change the interest rate or do they just go to the title company and work that out? Oh, if the if if somebody wants to change the interest rate after the transaction is closed, yeah. then it's between the beneficiary and the trustor. Trust it's between the borrower and the lender. There's nobody else to work it out. You don't get, you're not doing a second real estate transaction about the terms right. of the, yeah. Right. I just meant that process for them to follow. Do they, how do they do that? Do they just decide it themselves and then it yeah, gets recorded? It 
They okay. work it out themselves. Well, don't forget, the security for the note is the deed of trust, but the deed of trust doesn't get changed. The note gets amended. They right. do an amendment to the note. Actually, we did that one time. We sold a piece of property to somebody and the sellers didn't want to get that we had bought through owner financing, my ex-husband and I, and the sellers didn't really want to get paid off. They were missionaries in Africa and the buyers liked the note, but the interest rates had gone up. So the buyers um, were willing to pay the sellers a couple extra percent and the sellers, uh, the previous sellers, the people we bought it from, um, the beneficiaries agreed to increase the interest rate on the note and let the buyer, um, the new buyer take over that note. Hmm. Yeah. Made sense for everybody. Wow. It's fun, you guys. It's really fun. <laughs> it's amazing how it can work. I yeah. think I, I, I look at your career. Your career is so much different than mine. I think that, that you were, you're, you're, um, you're more the crafts person. I think the rest of us are just kind of the, um, stick the uh, little glue stick on and, you know, make our little art project where you kind of provide the glue, the stick, the, the, the paint, the art studio and, you know, everything. And and we're just over there, just kind of like, we're, you're like Santa, we're the elves, you know, you put it all on the map. I, I think it's really interesting because I'm, I'm learning a lot listening to you. I think there's still a lot over my head. So I, I have to tell everybody listening to this, there's gonna be a lot that's probably going to go over your head just because of the amount of years Anina has been in the business, which kudos to you. And we, everybody loves learning. And well, I do. That's probably listening to this. So it's great. Um, I just think that there's a lot of that real estate not being done anymore. And I'm kind of excited to see that maybe as we move on in this market, we might see a little bit more of it being done because I think there are a lot of people who have situations that need more care. And I think as the prices go up, I, I, the, I think when you mentioned this to me to do this, it's because my neighbor has found herself in this position where she needs to be in a care home and she is in a situation where she really can, she has, um, the house is paid off. She's going to have a lot of equity to deal with and she's single and it could ruin her benefits. And so that's, I think that there's going to be more people finding themselves in this situation. And I'm hoping that they find realtors that can help them be creative and not just say, oh, I've just put the sign up, sold your house, deal with it, call your CPA, go get your tax bill and, you know, too bad. Now, most of my clients that come to me in these situations have a plan, either between their family or they're working with somebody who helps them. Um, but I, I, I think they'd be well-served to be working with people that can, can ha actually help them be creative in their situation. Well, I th thank you, Michelle. And everything you said was so kind. And I feel really lucky because I worked with people. I worked at a company that doesn't even exist as a residential real estate company anymore. And the man who owned it, his family was one of the first two Anglo families to live in Santa Cruz County. And they subdivided Bonnie Dune and they subdivided um, Live Oak. And I learned so much from, I just say his name because he's gone, but it was Tanner Wilson. And um, I was so lucky to learn from him. I want to say two more things that you provoked in me mm -hmm. by what you said. The first one is, is in the example of a person who's elderly and they need income from the note, but they have no heirs. And there are people like that, but they might have a nonprofit that they want to give money to. They might want to give it to the community foundation or Dentes or the Arts Foundation. They can carry back the note secured by the deed of trust in their name. And they can basically do it, but they can put in their will that that note is to be given Santa Cruz Symphony, Shakespeare. They can make it so that note then goes as an asset, K-Squid, Kumba, any of the nonprofits or whatever, or some individual. They can will that to somebody so they get the income, but at the end, it goes where they want it to go. In fact, it's really important that they do designate where they want it to go because it is a valuable instrument and otherwise there's a whole thing about what happens to it. Um, so there is that. It's a really important thing to consider. Um, the other thing I want to say is if there are realtors out there who feel nervous about that and you want some help, I just, as I said, I'm so grateful to the people who taught me and the experience. And um, I remember when my client and I met with the other realtor and we figured out that 
she wanted to sell in the counteroffer to a big investment company as an installment sale. And he just looked at me and he just was like, what? (laughs) And it's like, it's not Greek, but it's a path that people aren't familiar with. And um, I think the more, the more that we can do what you said, you know, I always say, I have, you know, everybody talks about real estate, location, location, location. I talk about the greater the risk, the greater the return. That is true. But the really important thing when you're buying or selling real estate is it isn't what you get, it's what you get to keep. And if you're going to hand over 40% of the equity in the house you've owned forever and ever to the IRS and the state, well, if that's really what someone wants to do, God bless them. But if we can help that from happening and have it go to even a nonprofit or something, yeah, it, our job is to help people keep it, not just like get a good high price and then watch it all fritter away to the government. So before we sign off, I'm just going to plug, I think I'm going to plug it throughout 2023 and all my content is please go visit a trust attorney as soon as oh possible. Oh my God, I was just going to say that. Please. Michelle, I was just going to say that. Can I say it too? <laughs> For anybody who owns any assets at all, over about $400,000, you don't have to own real estate. You must set up a trust. Please. I'm going to tell you that my father, who didn't own real estate, but he had some substantial assets, did not set up a trust. And when he passed away, I became the executor of his estate because the other two people didn't want to. And it was a full-time job for me for two years. I had to deal with probate referees. I had to notify 32 people because he put 32 people in his will. And at the end of it, it was just, it made me miserable. So, and so much money went out that didn't need to go. Please set up a trust. Michelle, let's do it. One, two, three. Get a a trust. trust. (laughs) There's some great attorneys in town. Um, yeah. Get a trust. Yep. Well, thank yeah. you so much. I appreciate your time. Uh, we'll come up with another subject. I think I'm just going to um, have you come on and teach me. You'll just be my private teacher and then I'll publish it. <laughs> well, you are a pretty smart lady, Michelle, and it's an honor. But um, I'm going to tell you, I really do want to talk about the animal metaphors in real estate. because Okay. It's so- we'll do that one. That one will be fun. It will be. Thank you so much. Everybody have a great weekend. Stay dry. Hey, it's the Realtor Lady, Michelle Replogle. Is there a subject you would like me to explore in real estate or maybe about Santa Cruz? Feel free to contact me. I'd love to hear from you. Or if you'd like me to help you buy or sell real estate, that's also something that I do. You can contact me on Instagram, Live the Santa Cruz Life, or on my website, michellesellsforyou.com. That's with one L. My Facebook page, Live the Santa Cruz Life as well. Or check out my YouTube channel, Live the Santa Cruz Life with Michelle Replogle, and my email, michelle at michellesellsforyou.com. I would love to hear from you.